The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and the person in my ear is also Joe Devine. We're experiencing technical difficulties today and I can hear everything I'm saying in my own ears. It's not off-putting at all, as I say, joined by JJ Bull the Bullard. I'm going to have to take my earphone out so I can hear what I'm saying when I talk to you, Joe. Hello, quack quack. Hello. And hello to the other JJ. Oh, also here is Jonathan Ross Dog Mackenzie. Hi, John. Hello. You can't hear an echo, can you? No. No, we're the patsies to your fawning love fest. Is that right? I don't know. Ah, guten tag, Herr Stafford Bloor. Wie geht's du? Guten tag, Herr Devine. How are you? I don't know. Can you hear yourself twice? No, not at all. Well, then I'm not good at all. Right, (laughs) let's play this podcast game where we talk about football. And I'm just going to... Don't say anything, Seb, because I'm going to... Oh, that's so much better. (laughs) I'm a normal person again. I've removed my headphones. Listen, everything's going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. There's lots to discuss today, isn't there? There's so much. I'm in a terrible mood. We've got VAR. Manchester United, they beat uh, Arsenal. We'll discuss that, even though Steve Hanku tried to uh, bury it at the back end of the podcast. <laughs> We've brought it to the front, Steve. Thank you very much. The Merseyside Derby, very exciting. So much interesting there. And of course, also other games of football that happened. Plus a bit more Freddos, because everyone liked that. So that we're, you know, more, more, do more of what people want, isn't it? When people indicate a want, We'll fill that want. That's how all the good businesses work, isn't it? They make things that they think people want, not supply something that they think would be good for them to get into. That's true, yeah. yeah. Andy, yeah. what Steve Jobs did. I prefer the second one of those. I think Steve Jobs did well. Well, more of that later. We'll talk about this on, the, on your Steve Jobs business podcast it's a with chapter, John McKenzie. It's and John's yeah, business, exactly. of course. <laughs> anyway, uh, I don't know what's happening, but I, if you want to know what's happening, you should visit The Athletic, theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, where all of the best football analysis and news can be found. I believe you can get a 30-day free trial if you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. And if you do that, I guarantee you, I don't guarantee you because I think that's like uh, business language that you're not supposed to use, but I guarantee you that you'll like it. I think. Yeah? I guarantee you that I think you'll like it. Anyway, for now I will leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace of myself in my own ear. (laughs) (laughs) It's really (laughs) hard. VAR. Let's discuss VAR first. But don't worry, listeners, because uh, we're going to do it in an interesting way. We've got a comment here from David Beaton. Uh, David Beaton uh, says on YouTube, TIFO team, on the next podcast, it'd be great if you could discuss VAR and the interpretation of the offside rule. I'm not a Liverpool nor Everton fan, but I'm sitting here watching the Merseyside derby and uh, I've witnessed yet another goal chalked off because of part of a, a player was a uh, mere centimetres past the last defender. I've got sort of thoughts about offside. Maybe we can discuss that too. There have been multiple goals disallowed uh, this season because of minuscule margins of offside. And I'm pretty sure that was never really the spirit of the rule and think we should be advocating more for goals and not taking them away or for more goals and not taking them away. I think, I mean, this is, it's an interesting week to discuss it, Seb, largely because there were a couple, one quite standout, uh, very, very bad VAR call, um, which I don't think anybody really understands. 
Well, there's a couple. Do you mean the one at Newcastle, Joe? Oh, no, I mean the West Ham one. What was the one at Newcastle about? Well, sure so the one at Newcastle is Newcastle had a goal disallowed because um, Tarek Mitchell um, pushed an opponent into his own goalkeeper. Uh, and It's quite funny. <laughs> it's funny, but you would be, you'd be raging if that was given against your team. Well, I have a big take on this as well, just to jump in immediately, mm. is that that to me looks like they're trying to make it so you can't, you're allowed to be physical in the uh, when you're playing, right? So they're trying to make that a thing. Because he pushes him a little bit, he nudges him because he's running at pace. So that's enough to send him flying into the goalie and then wipes him out like a bowling ball, which is, again, funny. But uh... I think we're missing the funniest part, which is the ball then bounces off Tyreek Mitchell into the net, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I can see why that has been disliked with, with uh, VAR because it adheres to the thing they're trying to do this season where you're allowing more physicality in it. So maybe he should be stronger and not off balance when he's being nudged into his own goalkeeper attempting a flying like mm, a bowling ball. For sure. I was talking about the West Ham one though, Seb. The, the West Ham one was was uh, was including Jared Bowen and Edouard Mendy. Yeah, it's a really strange incident. So basically, Reese James misplaces a back pass, underhits it. Jared Bowen tries to beat Edouard Mendy to the ball. Uh, Mendy gets there, but kind of parries it back out, and uh, Maxwell Corney then scores. But in the challenge, Jared Bowen kind of it's unclear as to how much contact he actually makes on Mendy. But Boot touches him. Mendy goes down in agony apparently, and lies there. The play develops, Corne scores, and this is in, I think, the 91st minute, and it's an equaliser. Mm. And the referee disallows it, having been sort of directed to the VAR screen, and it's not really clear as to why. I've no. seen, obviously, lots of stills on the old social media showing that, in fact, Jared Bowen studded him in the chest, punched him in the face, two-footed <laughs> him in you well, know, the Well, I think, let's be, let's be fair, he, he, he sort of scrapes... Edouard Mendy's ribs with his leg and one of the suggestions from the commentary team early on was oh did he dang did he dangle a leg there as they say dangle a leg being of course the language for did he leave the leg there on purpose in order to leave a bit on him and I, I'm not sure you could say either way whether he did that probably not and I think we can assume uh, innocence in this case my sort of thoughts about this were that Edouard Mendy was never ever getting back to the goal to save that whether or not he was touched by another player uh, so mm. I think, uh, you know, unless you can see something like aggressively provoked foul, I don't really understand what scenario, uh, why are you laughing? Why are you laughing at? I'm watching the disallowed Newcastle goal. <laughs> oh, <here>. right. <laughs> it makes me laugh, sorry. Uh, anyway, John, let me ask you this. Uh, when it comes to VAR, lots of people thought, you know, fuck the decisions, let's not, let's not talk about those. Lots of people thought it was going to make everything better and that we wouldn't have to have these conversations anymore. Um, and that really hasn't happened. It's just sort of moved the bar a little bit further down so that the conversations that we're having now seem to be had with like an almost obscene level of abstractness and nuance, right? Yeah, it's, it's really a lesson in unintended consequences, right? Because no one really thought about what the impact of having technology as a form of refereeing, what the consequences of that would be. And I think as we're finding out, it's much more complicated than simply just saying, oh, every time you watch something back, it suddenly immediately becomes clear what's happened and we all make, make the, the, the right decision. So there's two issues. One is, is that when you introduce something like technology, people expect perfection. And I just don't think that's possible because as we've said, I mean, take the Jared Bowen instance, right? Jared Bowen, even if he's dangling a leg there, he's looking for a penalty. But how many times do players look for penalties, not get the penalty, but it's not just given as a foul the other way anyway? So I think it's even if he has left his leg in, it's, it's weird how when you view that in a replay situation, suddenly you're like, well, Jared Bowen is is the perpetrator of the crime here rather than the keeper jumping in. Um, so 
that's one thing. The other thing is, is that I think we've now arrived with two different contexts for every decision. One is that we've got certain decisions which are black and white. So you've got offside decisions, you've got goal line technology decisions, and those are you look at the tape and you can see if it's offside or not, right? We can talk about until the cows come home about whether or not that's what we should be doing, but that's what you can do. The other thing then is that you have fouls and penalties and 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 the problem there is, is that you're now moving from a black and white situation to a very, very subjective situation. And when you bring those two contexts together, you have on the one hand referees making like toenail decisions on offsides and it being that picky to then these situations where it's subjective and people feel as though like all offsides now become ridiculous, but no penalty decision is being overturned. And so I think when you bring those two contexts together, it just makes a really unsatisfying situation for all the fans because you feel as though you've got pickiness on one side, nothing changing on the other in terms of the actual things we wanted overturning, right? We wanted to see more penalties given because referees were bolder about calling them. And I think you, you just bring everything together and, and, and the result is just, it's just a mishmash of, of things and no one actually feels satisfied. There was one other incident as well that occurred in the Aston Villa-Manchester City game, which is, it's, it's clear cut that it, it shouldn't have been given as a goal, obviously, because the whistle is blown. Um, but Coutinho comes back from being, I think, slightly or just offside. If it was, it was fractions. And actually on a replay, it suggests that perhaps he wasn't. And he comes around, uh, he, he picks the ball up, the argument being offside, comes back behind the defenders, so with the defenders now between him and the goal, and scores like a lovely deflected goal that the keeper has no chance of, of, uh, of saving. But the whistle's already blown for offside in a situation where you think, maybe, well, maybe we never always thought playing. we should wait and everybody stopped playing. And I think... Not only is that goal probably, possibly going in anyway, you can't now make the argument that it definitely would because Man City players stopped a fraction of a second before. Um, but also, I would say that Philippe Coutinho, even if he does pick the ball up in a fraction of an offside position, he brings it back on the side and then takes an incredible shot from outside the goal where he no longer has any advantage of, of picking it up in an offside position. I think that should be allowed. But then you're gaining advantage by being ahead of the defender in the first place. So there is that... Argument. So, like, I agree with John that it becomes almost like a. You can have these decisions done like that if you're playing a game of FIFA because everyone's digital, and so you can then like the computer works out accurately. But um, in real life, you probably need a bit of maybe subjectivity into it. I think any time you score a wonder goal, you should just be like, mm, just let it, let it go. It's a yeah, goal, let McAllister right? right? goal. Right? Everyone's going. Oh, it's one of the all-time great Premier League goals. It's not. It's a, there was like, who's that boy? It's uh, Philip Billing punted one in from like twenty-five yards on the weekend. It was amazing. It was lovely, yeah. It was so good, right? McAllister is a really, really good goal. I believe the commentator said, "Top of Billing." <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like that. But this is the thing. So you get that with it. And you think, well, it was, uh, I can't remember who's going for the overhead. Is it Caicedo goes for the the overhead kick or something like that? I can't remember who does it, but misses the overhead kick. He's still infringing the play. But you think, well, it's probably allow that. But you have to have it in. And to be clear, I really like VAR. It's coming into Scotland soon as well, and that will be amazing because you think the standard refereeing is poor in England? Whoa, baby, let me show you a different. Not even a kettle of fish. It's like an oven of fish. Right. A whole oven it's of A whole fish. oven full of fish. It, it sounds delicious. It's bizarre. Yeah. 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 This is, yeah, this is the irony because obviously I support a club who were in the championship for a long time and championship refereeing is so much worse than, than Premier League refereeing. And I think yeah. you just sort of have to accept that, that, that the Premier League and, and the top five leagues do have the best referees. They do end up there. I don't think any other league exists. Let's talk about <laughs> Manchester United 3 one Arsenal. Actually, a very entertaining game. JJ, you covered this for TIFO IRL over the weekend. I mean, it's a fourth straight win for Manchester United. It's Arsenal's first loss of the season. A very entertaining clash between the two. An interesting tactical battle as well. Yeah, I think this was... 
I think Arsenal looked really good. And in the in the analysis we do, I'd say far more than that because that's not really enough to justify an entire video. But Arsenal look really well uh, coached. The system works. They have players that suit the system properly. They're well balanced. Um, but when you play that sort of football, if you don't get the luck, you don't take your chances. I think Arteta said this after the game: is that if you don't, when you have the dominant spells, if you don't take your chances, uh, you you don't win. Like you have to kill the game then and there when you have them on the ropes. And Guardiola used to talk about this all the time. It's the killer instinct they lacked, and he wanted players in because you, you can coach players to get it. But some players don't have that killer instinct knack. But maybe it'll come over time with Arsenal as they uh, as they grow into it. United. Can I ask you a question about United? Yes. Because one of the sort of um, bits of analysis after the game, and lots of people talking about it, were saying it was a counter-attacking victory. And for, for sure, United's second two of the three goals were counter-attacking. The first goal came after 18 passes and the ball going all the way up and back and all the way back up the pitch again in quite an intricate way. And it happened not, you know, not too long after a period in the first half where Manchester United played in a way against a top six team that I haven't seen them do for a decade. You can see there's clearly been worked on in the training ground particularly with shape and positioning so players know where to be and when so that's not players are uh, I think you maybe Ten Hag would want his players to have a certain level of freedom in the final third but in all the stages before that phases of play before players know where to be and when like the goal Anthony scores is because he's holding a position wide right which drags players out of position they have to leave him alone so when he becomes active later in the move he's not really had someone next to him I think you see it in build-up as well, like the, the former three at times with the left-back pushing up, so it's Sancho coming inside. Basically, what you're seeing is very clear structure, which they've maybe lacked. What they've done is also bring in players who can make that work. So, like, Rangnick could probably have done this. Solskjaer could probably have done something similar and put players in the right places. They had good, like, they've had high-quality coaches there for a long time. Like, Kieran McKenna's doing well at Ipswich, and you've got McFeelan was there before. Sure. But it's not the same as the difference as Christian Eriksen and Alexander Martinez, right? That's exactly it. You see, the passes that Martinez is playing out from the back are progressive. So um, you have normal passes, which is like five to ten yards. Progressive or over ten, I think is what the definition is. But basically, rather than going for the guy in midfield short, you're going for the guy uh, further out, either a diagonal pass to the wing or into someone like Fernandez dropping from a ten space to... uh, maybe one of the half spaces either side of him to receive the ball so you can get the ball from back to front really quickly and what they were doing was bypassing Arsenal's entire press and midfield with one pass they did it only like three times but that's enough to give you chances they scored three goals they scored three goals Ericsson amazing if you watch the highlights back of this one you'll see Ericsson um, being able to turn and he must have already scanned before he receives the ball but he, he, when you watch him in the actual play he doesn't look for a good couple of seconds before he receives it and just turns and pings it, knowing exactly where Fernandez will be. And it, again, splits the defence in two. It's really, really clever. And it's it's a lot of coaching from Ten Hag. It's also having the quality of technical players who can do that. Fred can't do that. McTominay can't do that. And so that means suddenly you've got this ability to go from defence to attack with a midfield rather than having them there as people who disrupt play and are just protectors. Well, Seb, there was. Uh, I'll, I'll was, come to you, John. You go now. Hold on. You start talking. It feels like and then you and now you start talking now. I feel as though that <laughs> I feel as though the, the there's a lot of d- discourse about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Eric Ten Hag, right? Because a lot of Manchester United fans just want to be like, okay, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer did this. You know, they played direct counter-attacking football, and that's basically what Manchester United need to do. And I think there's a lot of people who want to distance. Eric Ten Hag from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer because there's definitely differences between what they were doing. I think a lot of it comes down, as you say, to structure. It's about thinking about how do I get my players in the best situations so that we can do a couple of things. One is being able to attack in the best way possible, but also I think being able to defend really well. And I think that's where Ole Gunnar Solskjaer wasn't good. So with Eric Ten Hag, what you get is you get 
more of an idea of like pressing higher up the pitch and trying to win the ball back and generate short transitions from there, which I don't think we we saw with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. But also in terms of like the defensive transitions, Manchester United are just so much better at defending those transitions or that they will do with, with Eric Ten Hag than they were with, with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. So yes, they're both playing counter-attacking football, but it's two different, com- completely different levels of counter-attacking football with the structures behind it to be able to make those those differences. And in the long run, as Manchester United pick up those 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 structural ideas, they will get better and better. And I think Ten Hag said after the game as well, when he spoke to, I think it was Sky Sports was on, wasn't it? He said, the pressing's improving. I'm paraphrasing him, but he said something like, the pressing's improving, but the routines aren't perfect yet. So you can see they're learning how to do it. And if you're pressing, if you've got pressure from the front, then you can play a high line. If you don't have pressure from the front, then you have to drop deeper in different situations. We saw Arsenal's press is really, really well organised and it works constantly. Like Jesus did so much running in that game. They all they must be knackered, but they seem to be like a really high fitness level so they can pull it off. United will get better and better, but it'll take like a season and then a bit to be able to do this the way you want to do it. Because you only can really work on that sort of stuff when you've got long training session periods to do it. And they've got a game every three days or something. So you have like, like match day plus one is going to be recovery, I guess then you'll maybe have a day of light training, which won't be intense pressing. And then it's very hard to coach that over the next few months before the World Cup. Yeah. The Sky interview is really worth listening to because he talks about so much of the tactics and he makes a big thing about defensively saying that that Manchester United were really good and were doing what he wanted them to do. And I think the phrase that he uses is we we were able to keep them in the areas we wanted them to be in. We were able to keep them further away from the goal as well. And that's super important for for what you're trying to do when you're playing against a team like Arsenal, who you know are going to control the ball a lot. If you can force them to be in areas where they aren't going to be able to make those those sorts of in, in, incisions into the into your own third final third. And they were blocking the middle. It was blocking the middle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the one time Arsenal got through that, I think the one time they really got through the middle was that lovely bit of skill from Odegaard where he double touches onto his right foot to fire across the Tommy. It's such a brilliant bit of skill just to win a little uh, through ball opportunity. And that's the only time that Jesus was able to go through the middle and then the ball drops and that's how Saka ended up scoring. Mm. I mean, Seb, we've heard that both teams played really well. I think that's fair to say. And we've heard about a couple of individual performances, but um, in particular from Gabriel Jesus and Marcus Rashford, how did you make of those performances? They were very, they were thrilling to watch, weren't they? Yeah, no, sure. I, I feel like I'm learning a little bit about Jesus, which I didn't know before. I, I didn't realise that he was so, he's so strong on the ball. Like his ability to resist challenges and resist physical contact is amazing. And I don't, I don't know whether it was a uh, product of the way he was used at City, but I don't feel like I saw him in the kind of areas which attract that much defensive attention before. It's hugely impressive. Rashford, I think, is just a, a good news story. I think. There's a tendency when a player has a bad season over the summer to do little videos showing himself, you know, in a Rocky montage, basically. And um, Rashford did much the same thing. There was stories of him training intensively in, I think, in the United States. And this season so far, like, I don't think technically as a footballer, he's quite where he was. I think you can see his mind working a little bit quicker. Like that little ball around the corner for Anthony. I think that's a, that's a situation maybe a year ago where the ball gets caught under his feet or he doesn't see the option or he tries to, a little bit too hard to do something for himself, manufacture some kind of shooting position. But he, um, yeah, it's just, it's a, a nice ending to this story, actually. It's funny that um, you have all of these players and all of these pieces put around someone like that. And the conversation heading into this season was, you've got the centre forward, he's getting in the way, we can't get rid of because he earns too much money. Cavani's gone. Uh, Martial is injured so you kind of have to depend on this reclamation project and it's just really lovely to see in school what was ultimately the clinching goal watching the game yesterday like I wonder over time whether Rashford does become the better option just because of how you can mix and match those three front players 
I don't think he's ever been a world-class forward. I don't think he's ever going to be someone who scores 30 goals a season. But the diversity in that United line makes it really interesting if you can keep him fit, I think. I think he's yeah. best playing the out-to-in run. So on the left, probably left wing playing through. Like, So he goes to the central space there. I can't see him as a striker. And I think it's all it's very basic. But I think it's about just confidence. I think when he gets that through ball for the first goal he hits and he puts it across the keeper, it takes a deflection off one of the defenders and that bounces over the goalie. I think the way he takes that touch... Um, if he's confident, he pushes it further ahead of himself and then gets a really good drill on it. But instead, he takes it almost like, I cannot miss this, I can't miss this, rather than thinking I'm going to score, is what my weird like psych read of it is. But this is the thing, he, this guy's been, not panned, but he's really struggled over the last while. Struggled to score. And when you start scoring, you start believing in yourself again, and you'll start seeing his natural touches and stuff yeah. uh, coming more and more and more, and he'll be a, become a better player. It's really hard. Like, Maguire is devoid of confidence. He came on and was like... You put on, like Mr. Blobby in the back of the team because he's crashing into things. Like, a yellow card was one of his first tackles mm -hmm. and he looked really out of it. He could have given away a penalty and been booked as well again like yeah. later on in the game. That's, that's confidence, I would have said. Well, speaking of psychodrama, Seb, for Arsenal, in some ways you'd think it's actually quite good for them to lose their sixth game after winning five in a row because otherwise I think supporters maybe, certainly I would think if I was an Arsenal supporter... Are we going to win the league like undefeated? Hmm. Are we going to are we going to have another invincible season? It's quite nice to be brought a little bit back down towards the floor because it's clear they're going to do very well this season. And I think knowing how big groups of supporters work, it's a little nicer to space out some of those return to earth moments so that you know halfway through the season, if you end up finishing fourth or third, it doesn't feel like a massive failure versus what it should feel like, which could be a big success. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I I don't think my opinion of Arsenal changed based on anything I saw yesterday. I thought they played pretty well. They conceded some bad goals, had some ugly moments. And like I, I think there is value to kind of having that sort of momentum checking moment. But then at the same time, I, I think I found it annoying. Arsenal played well. They did all the things that should have been enough to win the game, probably. And I think the only cloud on the horizon is you do all of these things well, and yet you still don't win. You, you win in a way which is going to attract very familiar kind of criticism. So for instance, like, is the second goal with um, the, the the square ball from Ericsson, the one where he goes through by himself. Mm -hmm, yeah. No, no, that's the third goal, sorry. That's the third goal. Um, that's the kind of moment where you think that's ridiculous because that just shouldn't happen. That's a major defensive malfunction, essentially. And it becomes a, oh, Arsenal have played really well and they deserve to be level. And then it becomes a mentality thing and you get all the quad psychology and all that kind of stuff that washes back into the, into the discussion. And that would really irritate me because it would it kind of obfuscate all the things that have been done well this season because it had nothing really to do with it. They just got done on Sunday um, and it happens because it's football and that's the way of the game. But then, I don't know, like I, I, I think that good to be brought down to earth thing becomes something that fans say, I do all the time. It's a way of comforting yourself, isn't it? Be like, yeah, yeah, you know, refocus and we'll, we'll have a look at this and, you know, make sure that everybody doesn't get carried away. But actually, I, I think one of the best things about Arsenal recently has been the fact that everyone has got carried away. Yeah. Atmosphere, the Emirates is better, the confidence that's of these a good, players That's a really better. good point, yeah. And actually, for someone like Jesus, we've talked loads about him individually. I think it's made a huge difference to bring him into an environment where things are really positive rather than the old Arsenal environment where... You're never sure. You're never less than forty-five minutes away from an absolute tantrum because something has gone wrong. Now the atmosphere is, you know, it, it's more conducive to someone um, yeah. living up to his billing and his transfer fee. I think. Well, so, I would, um, I would say as well. I think um, an, a good indicator of where Arsenal are as a squad was just before the game in the huddle. You could see that at least when the cameras were filming, it was Zinchenko and Jesus who appeared to be the most vocal in that bubble yeah. ahead of a big game that 
presumably you would expect them, having played for Manchester City, would be much more used to uh, than some of the Arsenal players. So let's not forget like where they are in their cycle. Very positive for them. They're against Everton next uh, next weekend, I think. So uh, Everton, still the tough games come because, of course, uh, Everton had a decent result in the Merseyside derby, which we'll be talking about immediately after this break. Hello there, I'm James Richardson and I just want to give you a quick heads up on the Totally Football Show's European edition. We're with you every Tuesday lunchtime, as you may know, but it's a particularly big edition this week as James Horncastle, Raphael Honigstein, Julian Laurence and Alvaro Romeo look ahead to match day one of the Champions League group stage, which features Real Madrid heading to Paradise, Liverpool going down to Naples, where they always lose, and Juventus going to Paris Saint-Germain for the first time in Champions League history. Crikey, we'll also be rounding up all the continental news from the weekend too, so don't don't miss it. Search for The Totally Football Show wherever you get your podcasts. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing The Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. Ah, delightful break that we had there. John McKenzie, Everton nil. Nil Liverpool, good result for for Everton, you would say. Another troubling result for Liverpool. Yeah, it's a case of the things that Liverpool struggling at through the season being something that they struggled at again in this game. I think credit where credit's due, Frank Lampard recognised the areas where Liverpool are struggling and and made decisions to to cause problems there. So we know that Liverpool are really dangerous in the wide areas. They have a really, really dangerous front three in transition. They brought Darwin Nunes back in and he's really dangerous space, space in front of him. He's a tall guy, but he's very quick and loves to just run through on the ball. And then you've got Diaz and Salah on the other side. So if you give any space in behind your defence for that front three, then you cause some problems. So if you're playing against Liverpool and, you, and you're not going to try and play them their own game you're going to sit a little bit deeper and you've got to think well, one how do we stop just allowing them wave upon wave of pressure but two like how do we get further down the field and, and cause problems ourselves and I think that that Everton did that well because I noted in the video that I did the video review that when they were pushing forward they were funneling Liverpool into the center of the pitch um, they were doubling up on the on Liverpool's dangerous wide players and allowing space for them to move into the into the centre of the pitch. And then because Liverpool have got this injury crisis in midfield, they're not at their most creative in those central spaces. And yeah, it meant that they were able to cause Liverpool problems further up the pitch. But when Liverpool did get through, they weren't allowing their front three a huge amount of space and time on the ball so they could drop back into into a bit more of a lower block and, and cause some problems in that way. So yeah, it was... It's the way that you cause Liverpool problems at the moment. And a lot of teams have realised that. And I think uh, th- there's a lot of people saying, oh, you know, Liverpool have got injury issues. They're in a transition moment, etc." But I do think a lot of this comes down to the, re- the tactical realisation that there are things that you can do against Liverpool to cause some problems. Well, let's, I want to come to that. But before we do, I just want to ask Seb something about Everton. Seb, we had a conversation maybe, I guess, three weeks ago now when the first game of the season and uh, Alex Iwobi played in central midfield, which was, it seemed a little unusual. 
You and I both thought he played quite well in that game. He's still there, and I, I, he's playing next to Onana now. He's doing quite well, isn't he? I, I, I just want to mention it because I feel like he's a bit of a figure of fun based on his transfer fee, but he's playing a position I never, never realised he could well. Yeah, so after you and I spoke about that, I was talking to some Everton fans on Twitter, and they said, well, no, actually, he had a really good end to last season, and um, I'm sure he did. It's just, what I think what's interested me this year is that kind of the tone of the way he plays and the speed with which he plays has changed. Like, I've always thought of Alex Awobi as a very active, dynamic footballer, whereas now he's, especially with Anana coming to the team, he has to be almost the senior statesman because Anana is learning the game at this level. He has not got a lot of, I mean, he had, um, I think, 18 months in France. Prior to that, he was in the Zweite Bundesliga in, here in Hamburg. So he's not, I mean, he's not an experienced guy, especially not in a Premier League situation. And so Iwobi finds himself in a new, in a kind of converted position, but also having to be, having to be setting the example and having to take ultimate responsibility for the department, which is really interesting for him. And I, I like, I don't think he's turned into Musa Dembele. I just think that he's been a lot better than I thought he was going to be. And actually, if you were to compile a list of things that have gone well for Everton this season, okay, lack of goal scoring, not on there, a few problems in attack, lack of Dominic Carver-Lewin, yeah, but you'd be hard-pressed to say that Wobi doesn't deserve to be on that list because he has exceeded expectation and he's also allowed a little bit of stability to grow around him. Both those full-backs or wing-backs when they play there have been very, very... Um, they didn't actually have the best game at the weekend, but generally they've been quite good. They've been positive and shown themselves to be upgrades. The defence has been better than I expected it to be. Mm. And like, if you're Mope looking at well. your team... Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, you can, you can like, see let's, scoring goals let's for not over-egg it and proclaim him to be a, a world beater, but he's just... Um, let's over-egg it, Seb. I want to. I like Mope. <laughs> do it. Do it. <laughs> um, I'll, seven eggs. John, when it comes to Liverpool, uh, you know, we talked about the potential tactical limitations before. Let me ask you specifically with Darwin Nunez. Obviously a fantastic player, obviously going to score a barrel full of goals, as they say. But he is a different player to Roberto Firmino. And I think it takes a little bit of time for the other players around him and for the team as a whole to work out how to best utilise that. What the, you know, and, and how the sort of what's changed, I suppose. Yeah, it does seem a little bit interesting to me that Liverpool went with someone like Nunes when a lot of the problems to me seem as though the sorts of problems that elite teams face when oppositions recognise that the best chance they have against them is to sit deep and try and hit them on the break um, because that means that you get congested penalty boxes. It's all about trying to break down those those low blocks. And obviously Darwin Nunes is going to offer you something as a penalty box threat because he's a, a tall guy, he's a good header of the ball. Um, you've got Trent Alexander-Arnold who's going to play those whipped crosses into the back post from the, from the right half space um, and he will generate chances from there. But... I felt as though in the game against Everton, he, he just wasn't offering a huge amount of upside. Like you do want to get a lot from him in terms of trying to get him into into maybe even wide areas or central spaces, running through onto the ball and and causing problems in that way. You're just not going to find a huge amounts of those sorts of situations in Premier League games, I don't think. So actually midway through the game, Firmino was brought on and that made a huge difference. Now they kept Nunez on but it meant that they now had someone who was a little bit more creative and able to drop into into the space behind the striker and, and cause problems from there. Um, can I, can and- I ask you specifically though, Firmino had had a, like, was in real good form. Like in that, in that 9-0 Bournemouth game, he was like sensational and is clearly at a good stride at the moment. Against Everton, I think, I don't think anyone has to be a tactical genius to know that Everton were going to do what Frank Lampard did with them. Uh, so based on what you've just said, why didn't, they start Firmino. I don't understand. 
Yeah, and I suppose the big question there was like, why? Because you can start Firmino just behind the striker, and that's what they—that's what how they played the second half yeah. of the game. But they went with Fabio Carvalho as an eight rather than I think with with Firmino it's more like a ten. I guess they expected Lampard to push up the pitch and then open up space for them to be able to attack. And I guess if you spent that amount of money on a player as your star striker, you sort of have to start him. But in terms of why they went with Carvalho over. <coughs> I'm not saying Firmino, it was the wrong decision. I'm just curious. As no, to, as I, to I, I think it be. probably was the wrong decision. I think when you look at the way that, I think after Firmino came on, they were a lot more incisive in the mm. in the final third, and and he was able to drop in, help out, move around, cause problems with with Everton's marking and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, yeah. In a way that that Carvalho wasn't. Um, that but, Darby's also a bit nuts. So there's the, like you know Everton will push far more in that sort yeah. of game at home than they ever would. Um, like away, so you know that you're going to expect you can expect a different kind of Everton against you in that game. So then, if you're if they're going to push up, they're going to leave space in behind, which then you've got yeah. Nunez causing all the hassle. It kind of makes sense. Yeah, and the game regard. definitely opened out, I think. But the problem was then that actually, rather than and this is again something I pointed out in the video, like the problem was is that in those situations when the game becomes transitional, you expect Liverpool to be the better team in those situations. But it turned out that Everton were causing the problem. So for the for the Mope chance, which is the biggest chance of the game. Everton picked the ball up in their own penalty area and were able to mm. play Onana to, to Gray, Gray to Mope, and then they, they added something like a four-on-three, five-on-three overload in, in, in an attacking transition. And Mope probably should have scored. If he didn't score, there was two very easy options for Tappins yeah. square as well. Um, they look like the more dangerous team. So there's definitely issues, I think, with, with Liverpool at the moment. Well, with I mean, issues are beyond just what's happening on the pitch. Of course, there are lots of injuries as well, keeping certain players off the pitch. Uh, they did bring in Arta Mello to play in the midfield, presumably. Did, did, did he come on in the game? He didn't come on. Didn't come on in no, the game. but he obviously had, he was only formalised yeah. five minutes before the game in order, in order to be on the bench. So Is he going to help? Hi. The main thing, I every time I hear about Arta, I think about the deal between Barcelona and yeah, Juventus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's my main association with him. But I've literally it's, no idea how he, really what he does to, as a footballer. It's really hard to read. But I mean, what Arta gives you is he's a bit more of a metronomic player in midfield. So I think part of the problem that Liverpool have had is that, you know, when when games do become transitional, they they, they can lose control of the of the game a little bit in in that sense. And he's someone like Thiago, who's going to be able to pick the ball up and just play quick passage, man, passes, manage the tempo. And uh, he's also a fairly good ball carrier as well. So I think, okay. yeah, he just offers something different, a bit more of a passing presence in the midfield, which Liverpool, I mean, we talk about it a lot, like the, the evolution of Liverpool's midfield. But if you look at some of the players that Liverpool have regularly played with in that midfield, mm. then, you know, this season they've had, I think, James Milner, Jordan Henderson and Harvey Elliott. I mean, Harvey Elliott's a great player. I really like Harvey Elliott, but he is a youngster who they're, they're trying to blood. He's the sort of player that you want to bring on late in games and, and get experience in that way. I think bringing someone like Arto in, regardless of the fact that there are questions about how how high his level can be in European football, I still think that he will add something that they don't have in terms of profile. Do you know what else offers something different? It's Scotland. Yeah. Uh, I mean, also what things like a free university if you're from there, and um, lovely water, lovely delicious water, great Highland scenes. I mean, you get some of that elsewhere, but um, not quite like you know, well, specifically in the Highlands. They yeah. film all the uh, the <laughs> Travis music videos there. I've heard. 
<laughs> and anyway, also they do Celtic haggis. Four <laughs> haggis. Yeah. So I wasn't going for stereotypes. Celtic, Celtic no. Four haggis nil. Celtic Four nil Rangers. That sounded like a big game. And also we talk about these two teams, JJ, because I believe for the first time in many a yonder. Uh, they're both in the Champions League group stages. So, you know, it's literally impossible to escape. Yeah, well, this diary was brilliant. I used to hate watching the old firm games. I didn't care because they basically ruin uh, the league for everyone who doesn't support them. Because right. you just can't beat them. You can't. Over, yeah. over leagues, you can beat them one-off. Sometimes yeah. in the cup if you're lucky. But mostly uh, they're going to win everything. Like me and you in a race. Which, exactly, because I would win that every well, time. So there's no chance for you. It would be well, me, we already know yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, like, I remember, it was an interesting thing when Stephen Gerrard had a like, conversation, I think, with Gary Neville on, on his YouTube, I think, and he talked about how the Glasgow Derby is far more, is far more like scary and big than Liverpool Everton games. Right. I was watching Liverpool Everton at the same time as watching this one. This one was amazing, like the, the energy, the atmosphere, the like aggression. It was, it was so much. What happens much more. when Celtic win or one of the teams wins four 0 in that derby? Is it? Is it? You, you take know? it as a big hit. It's a big. That's a big hit yeah. for Rangers. And then the the way they won it was by being more intense. Rangers were, were, came to try and I think slow them down, stop them from playing. But you can't really do it. Celtic Park is full. The noise is amazing, and then it's just energy, energy, energy. Uh, Ali McCoy is pointing out how the ball boys were even involved. So whenever the ball went out of play, immediately threw it back. And you can see from loads of set plays that there's a one of the goals that Celtic score is a. They give the ball away. Rangers walk and they're slow, trying to trying to play at their pace. But Celtic immediately put the ball down, hand on it, kick it, goes forward, always forward, and then they're able to score just from this. Was Rangers trying to adjust back into their shape because they're trying to make, play it as an away team and trying to slow it down. But like whereas you might be able to, like Liverpool might be able to try and slow down Everton and take the 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 bite out of the fans and that sort of game, yeah. you can't do it in Celtic and Rangers games. Right. You, you just can't. It's it's kind of crazy. As for how they'll do in the Champions League. I don't know. Well, I mean, the question here from Hankles is, is um, is Rangers and Celtic both being in, in the Champions League good for Scottish football or not? Can I can I actually just put a little plug in for the Athletic Football Podcast at this point? Because um, I listened to an episode of theirs last week with Mark Chapman, had uh, Matt Slater and Phil Buckingham from the Athletic on. They talked about the Champions League and the, the broadcasting revenue and the impact that it has on some of the mid-tier European leagues as opposed to the top ones. So the example they gave was like the Danish League with, with Copenhagen, who are in it every year. And as a result of that, like the gap between them and everyone else in the league is enormous because of the, the revenue that they bring in. So I guess in a sense, like having Celtic and Rangers both in it is good for the league insofar as it maintains like a bit of e- equity between those teams, but it's still bad for ev- for the league overall, would you say? Yeah, so there's a, this is a complicated one. So it's good for the league in that it then makes them interesting to watch so you can potentially get a higher sale value for your TV rights for the league. Uh, which is then, I don't remember exactly how that's distributed, but basically... So one of the things I said in this Athletic podcast was that an issue with leagues where there's one or two really good teams at the top and yeah. everyone else is rubbish is that they it, they might have decent domestic deals, but nobody wants to watch them internationally because it's not competitive. No, well, that's, that's the exact problem. I mean, you think yeah. in, like, in La Liga, I mean, people only really want to watch Real and Barcelona. Sure. Kind of thing. I mean, Germany's got a problem with Bayern winning all this sort of time. Mm-hmm. Celtic won nine in a row, Rangers came back, whatever, blah, blah, blah. The money difference between Celtic and Rangers is, it's not even, you can hardly even explain it. It's like trying to like, see if we had our race, what we're going to do one day, it's mm. like if you then tried to race me while in a car, yeah. it's that different. I can't beat I'd you. I'd still win. 
Yeah. <laughs> so you might like occasionally if we did a hundred races, you might not be able to turn the car on from the start or do the ignition. I think right? I could turn a car on. Right, and I might times. get another thing. Right, so you yeah. might you might get the ignition. What doesn't work? You're like, oh no! I haven't got a driving license. I know this. Once in every hundred times, a police officer would prevent me from driving. Well, and then in this analogy, you're doing the ignition. I get a head start. I run. It's a hundred meter race, and I get so far, and then suddenly the ignition goes on. And even though I'm close to the top, you still beat me anyway because you've got all that extra power. Do you know what I do? No. In race number one. I'd just mow you down, <laughs> and then you wouldn't be able to race. Well, the other I think 99. you're going to try and do that in our foot race anyway. Oh, I'm going to mow you down. No, I'm sure. fully aware, but I think I'll be. It doesn't matter anyway. So, in terms of it's the league, I think it's awful. Do I think it's awful? I don't know. I don't know. What I think so. I think I support Aberdeen. That's my team. Uh, lots of other people support other teams. Rangers and Celtic are not the only two teams in that league. Mm. But there is no point ever just like abandon all hope now. You support anyone else apart from the old firm? They'll never win the league again. No one will ever win that league other than those two. This is where the Super League becomes a thing that's already happened. Mm. Because in every domestic league around it, you've got Copenhagen winning there all the time. It occasionally changes hands. Like in France, you had Monaco and Lille won, right? So it can happen. Leicester won it in England. Yeah. But it, the majority of the time, it's going to look like... If you look through the Wikipedia, who's won the title since like 1960, it's only, yeah. only Rangers or Celtic. Well, I like it that way. And I think that people who've had stuff before should still have it now. Yeah. That's what I think. <laughs> the only plus point to them being in there is if they do do well and they get um, some draws and some wins, then the coefficient points you get for Champions League <laughs> is really high. Yeah. So when Rangers did very well in the, in the Europa League, I think Celtic were okay recently as well. Rangers were in the final last season, right? So that really helps your coefficient. It really pushes it up. And that means if you finish third or fourth, you get into Europe. But the amount of money that the rest of Scotland makes is so small that you see it like Hearts were in Europe. Um, it's basically everyone gets put, like, put out of it almost immediately. Yes. It's, it's what happens. The Aberdeen didn't finish third last season, which is where they tended to be for the last few as a result of that, now no longer in Europe, Aberdeen would have been in the best position probably because of the funding they're doing to be able to do something there, but they're not going to do it now. And then it's just pointless. You get into Europe to the qualifying rounds, you're out by June or July. The entire season is pointless yeah. and uh, it's absolutely useless. And so it's good for Rangers and Celtic fans. It's good that um, it's kind of good seeing them but the thing is they might play uh, Rangers are playing Liverpool and Napoli right? Mm. So they're playing them and then they're going to turn up they're playing Aberdeen on Saturday. Yeah, Aberdeen might get a result out of them they might sure. get a two-all or something like that. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because they will finish 20 points off them at the end of the season. Yeah. Oh, that's bad, isn't it? Brian Hove Albion, five. That was a real yawn. It wasn't in response to you. I, I'm tired. I stayed up playing video games again. Got to stop doing that. Brian Hove Albion, five, Seb. Two Leicester City. Brandon Rogers, I believe Leicester have one point from six games now. It's really not very good at all, is it? You know what it is, Joe? It's like over the last 18 months, so wherever you wherever you start your Brandon Rogers and Leicester decline point, um, the mistakes and the errors and the goals conceded look really, really, really similar during that time. Um, we've talked about kind of their issues at set pieces before, but this is a separate issue. Like there are moments during games and this is a, the Brighton game is a good example of this where nobody ever seems to learn anything from what happens. So if you see the goal that uh, Leandro Trossard scored to put Leicester, uh, to put Brighton 3-2 up, five minutes later, exactly the same situation develops in exactly the same part of the pitch and the overload is exactly the same and the same fullback is isolated in exactly the same way. And if you can find that moment, I think that's really descriptive of where Leicester are. Like it's, it looks like a playing staff and a coaching staff who don't really belong together anymore because one has phased the other out, tuning the other out. They've got bored of each other. Um, I don't know in 
in what form that parting should take place. Like, obviously, it's a lot harder to get rid of players than it is just a, a head coach. I also think Brendan Rodgers is quite a good coach, and he just ha- seems to have this... He seems to have a shelf life beyond which he can't arrest a decline. But it must be so dispiriting. I was following um, our good friend Ali Clarkson on Twitter. Good friend Ali, who is also a, uh, a Leicester City fan. And he seems utterly sick of it. And we all know Ali, very even-tempered person. It's hard to get Ali sick of anything. Exactly that. Exactly yeah. that. And Apart from food poisoning. Well, <laughs> <laughs> what was really... What was it must very be strange. awful for you being able to hear your own bad jokes back again in your own ear. <laughs> it is taking some of the wind out from underneath my wings, yeah. yeah. I think um, if you can find them, and if nothing has changed between us recording this and releasing the podcast, mm. Brendan Rogers' quotes after the game were very, very strange. Went down a kind of Scott Parkerish route oh. in terms of discussing club atmosphere. He talked fairly disparagingly about the activity which has taken place over the summer and the lack of reinforcements. And that's not something that you say if you're in fear of being dismissed. You're kind of encouraging people to kind of yeah. hit back at you a little bit. But performance-wise, they they are dreadful, which is very strange because it's like a mind trick because you see all these good players on the pitch, even just in midfield. So Cowan Hall and Madison and, and Tielemans and um, Harvey Barnes has had injuries, but he's coming back into a little bit of form. Indeed, he is in the, the harder midfield as well. Indeed, he's been playing at centre-back recently. No, but he's on the pitch, JJ, which is like, Usually with Leicester, previously at least, when indeed he was gone, the whole system seemed to collapse. And so, okay, you have to move him on the pitch and you have to change players' roles a little bit, but you still have the quality of player on the pitch that means that it shouldn't look like this. Like, there are few excuses a huge where they are at the like, because you're right, Ndidi is hugely important. So the midfield that Rodgers came into, when Le- when he came into Leicester, they had, a, they had a really good team. They had Vardy, who was playing very well, and he scored a lot of goals last season as well, right? So he's still not a, he's still a good player. But you had um, Ndidi anchoring the midfield, uh, and you had Tielemans, who I really rate as a player, good kind of captain leader, makes things happen in the big games, he's a big game player. And you had James Madison doing well. Madison looked absolutely hopeless against Brighton, giving the ball away. Um, and he, I think Match Day 2 did it really well on Sunday night, talking about how you can see players shouting at each other. But if you put Ndidi into... So the problem they've got is they've not... They had Fofana, they're playing a back four, they've got Evans as one of the centre-backs, and Didi's a centre-back, he's not a centre-back, and not only does that make you worse at that one position, and in the Premier League that's a huge thing to have one position weak, it also weakens your entire structure of your midfield. In comes Sumari, who is not as good in the midfield, he's just not as good a player, and then suddenly that's kind of weak. And then Rodgers is tweaking things to try and work it, like he's always liked playing a diamond over time, and he often plays a diamond midfield either with a back three or a four, He's playing something like it. He started with two strikers in this game. Daka and um, he and Atchul were, were starting in this game here. Just trying to get something to make it work. But you've got Barnes and Madison as the two wide players. He doesn't really have any wingers. So he's missing wingers. You want to play a 4-3-3, you need wide wingers who can either come inside the pitch or can hold the line. He doesn't have them. So he's missing Harvey Barnes more so than James Madison. He can do it, yeah, yeah, but then you're missing the other side as well. So then you work out how you block the, the pitch. And you've got Justin and Thomas, who are both young. They're all right. They're, they're, they'll be quite good going forward in the future. You've got Danny Ward replacing in goal. Then you've got Daniel Amartim who comes into defence. I don't rate him as a centre-back either. They don't, don't seem to trust uh, Sionchu anymore, and I can see why. He made loads of mistakes. But you lose the leadership from that whole dressing room. Kasper Schmeichel's gone. 
Wes Morgan is gone. Like Christian Fuchs, these were the guys who were the captains and the leaders that uh, like fostered that team spirit that made them so good in the past. When you lose that from the dressing room, it's incredibly hard to try and make a team be competitive. Like Tielemans will be a leader. He's captain. I think it was Anderlecht who was captain of, wasn't he, when he was younger? They've got that. But then they're missing like Johnny Evans as well. But you're missing that big power vacuum. which has gone, stripped out of it. There's a big absence and he's not had the chance to bring anyone in who can do that. And the transfers he has brought in haven't all been amazing. And their recruitment has been none. Like they bought in uh, Vout Fass. Do I don't know do who. He, I don't know what like, he's like, Seb, so I can tell you. I don't. I don't know anything about the new centre half they they signed. But like Morgan and Fuchs, like big leadership for it. But they've been gone for years now. Also, recruitment this summer has obviously been a problem because they've got that situation with bringing new new um, sporting director in from Southampton, but he couldn't start work until after the transfer window is finished. But then, like, if you look at the players that he's brought in over the past twelve to eighteen months and the lack of production that's been produced from them. So Samara is a good example. I don't think Samara quite deserved the reputation he had on arriving in England, but you know, nevertheless, he he was signed for quite a lot of money. Rogers seemed to have, seemed to have given up on him ahead of this season starting. There was talk of him going back on loan to France or being sold outright back into to Liga. Uh, Dennis Pratt was another. Dakar, I think, is a good player, but you haven't seen a lot of Dakar. I think the failure to move on from Jamie Vardy. Like, I don't really agree. I don't think Jamie Vardy is still a good player. Like, I think he's an okay one. I think he's shot it. I think he'll still score potentially 10 goals a season, but it's kind of interesting that over the weekend, Vardy was left out. And that doesn't feel like necessarily a tactical decision because like you, JJ, like in a time like this, you want a character in your first 11 because, and you want someone that's been there for a long time. You want someone that's been there and done a lot of things for that group of supporters. And the last manager that kind of picked a fight with Jamie Vardy did not end on the right side of that argument. So it's it's a tricky one, but then this is why it feels like it's reached the end of its coaching journey, just because he's not extracting as much out of these players. And there have been a lot of players, a lot of talents come through Leicester in the last couple of years since he got there. A lot of money spent. It doesn't necessarily have to be a situation where Rogers gets shot into the sun, must never work for another club again. It's just the end of this particular cycle at Leicester because for a long time it went very, very well. His only failure really was to get, I think we talked about this earlier, but to get over the line at the right moment, which would have kind of uncorked the money. I feel like he came in though, Seb, and there was so much potential for them to go on to be much better and they haven't really got the investment and the recruitment right and that's where the real problems come. Like Vardy scored 15 goals last season in the Premier League. That's really good. But the thing with Vardy is he hardly touches the ball. He'll have the fewest touches of any player. Like goalkeepers have more on them every game because he's very efficient with it, but then you don't get enough out of him otherwise. And if you want to play a style of play where you can have the front man linking, then you can't have that. And so maybe he's seeing there's a lack of uh, dialogue between the midfield and the forward, and that's why he's taken Vardy out. That might be one of the reasons he's done that, to try and get that maybe. in. It could be, maybe. it might be something maybe. else. But like that is the real problem for me. And if you get rid of Rodgers now, like, bear in mind that this guy is a really top coach. His Celtic team was so good. He almost won the league with Liverpool. Like He knows exactly what he's doing. And maybe the thing that he's not strongest at as a manager is managing that, that the dip that comes mentally after a good season because like Liverpool had that bad season after they almost finished second wasn't it they, they had a bit of a dip I'd like to hear John because I feel like I, yeah. I, I'm very interested in, in the two sort of separate angles to this but John can you give us a little bit of flavour <laughs> add a bit of spice to the pan yeah I feel like you, you know the meme with a guy in a hot dog suit where it's like we're trying to find <laughs> the guy who did that <laughs> yeah 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 I feel like that's almost how I feel about Brendan Rodgers here because like the 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 drop off that Leicester have had has been so big, and it, we we were talking earlier this morning, I think about about oh well, obviously Brendan Rodgers did really well. They nearly made the Champions League on a couple of occasions, but to go from that to then this situation where it just feels hopeless at Leicester, they don't have 
they don't have the squad there they don't they aren't getting results everything seems to be a mess i think that has to be on him in some in some form there's it, this isn't just okay we had a couple of seasons where we didn't finish in the champions league and, and we've dropped down into the mid table this is like panning form one point um, after six games yeah it, it it's it's bad and and there's no sense in which you know that they've managed the squad well and obviously that the, the recruitment department are responsible for that as well and the ownership are responsible for that as well but this has all been done on his watch and i think there's there are certain signs i think that i've seen in recent seasons that brendan rogers approach is maybe not as useful as it once was i've watched him a lot in the premier league and it feels as though he's he's had sort of like two systems he has a kind of like attacking system when they're away from home when they're at home and they have a more defensive system when they're at home and he just seems to go oh well we'll we'll play this way away from home this way at home and if it doesn't work we'll just switch to the other system and it just it, it feels as though it's being becoming tired out and um, he obviously has the ability to build like a, a, a high possession team. He, he obviously did well at Celtic. Although interestingly, a lot of my friends who are Celtic fans do talk about how he was really fun at first, but and in the seasons that followed that, it just became a bit too boring and a bit too, you know, possession for the sake of possession. And and yet they still, because obviously Rangers had dropped away at that time, they they were able to, to carry on those runs. But I see him as being like a solid manager, but I feel as though now the league is getting more competitive. You have to have, you have to be more than just a solid manager. And I think the way that Leicester have gone, maybe, maybe points. That Do you way think it's kind of worrying? Last, like, last, I mean, words, I don't know how last words on Rogers here, please guys, we've oh. got to move on, but you go quickly. Uh, yes, one Nick. sentence, seven, then we'll get one sentence from JJ and then okay. I'll decide who the winner is. It's right. a really long one. It feels worrying how many players have either plateaued or stagnated or regressed under. Great sentence. Lately. Moving on. No, okay. I'm teasing. I'm teasing you. So <laughs> it's just it, it's not a symptom of health, is it? If you think about the kind of the market value of someone in, like Ndidi a couple of years ago, Tiemens we know is a good player, but with a few flaws. Madison, I don't know. But like, it's interesting also that some of these players don't want to be there. Like you've won an FA Cup and you've been within touching distance of the Champions League, and Tiemens wants to go to Arsenal. Understand wanting to go to Arsenal now. But from quite early, uh, quite um, late in sort of the new year, that seemed to become his sort of uh, his direction of travel. It's a weird atmosphere. Like when you've got players, Madison seemingly wanted to play for Newcastle. Don't know, but that, that's kind of what was reported in various places. That doesn't feel like a group who particularly believe in the direction they're headed under a manager. That's all. I think the key to managers' success is recruitment, and that's the only way they really get better. They haven't had any, and that's why they're weaker now than they were before. And if you look at this season they've had so far, they've played Arsenal, who look amazing. Uh, they lost to them. They've lost to Southampton, which is not great. Then they've played Chelsea and Man United, and Brighton are excellent as well. All really difficult games so far that you could easily see them losing over the course of a season. Only six games in, I could easily see them getting points out of Villa and Spurs. It's a thing they could do at some point, and then it all reverses and it changes back to them being okay. But the, the thing I would say to finish off on Rodgers is that, well, he's been well in the league in the past and whatever. When you remember like the weaknesses he had, he was good at Celtic. This, this team won 69 games in a row or something, or, or didn't lose 69 games. Sorry, that, was, that would be crazy. But in Europe, they were not very good. So they, they really struggled. And then with Liverpool, when he got into the Champions League, uh, again, wasn't very good. He was resting key players. He for kind of games, threw that Champions really League group, didn't he, when, in, in, yeah. with Liverpool? Yeah, so great. like maybe there is something to him where he's not quite able to get that next top level and he was when he came in at Leicester he was at exactly the right level for them and could make them play really well and he, they, they played nice football but without the recruitment to make them better and maybe he's not the right manager to take them to that, that level but hasn't he had the recruitment hey, hey 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 you're done <laughs> do you want to hear my take yeah yeah since uh, watching Arsenal's All or Nothing series and being reminded <laughs> of what it's like to be a human being, 
I think it's impossible to know what's going on. Yeah. So let's let's forget about it. And a few comments now. Um, <laughs> Steve Hankey giving me a quizzical look there. How <laughs> dare you look at me that way, Steve Hankey? I'm not your pet. Uh, but Steve Hankey, thanks. You have put in this uh, these helpful comments from the listeners here for us to finish this week's episode. A few comments from listeners, John, talking about you. Very exciting, isn't it? I like to see this as me winning the battle of John versus Joe. Well, in a way, it sort of is, yeah. Be vanquished. Each day you uh, encroach further and further across my Rubicon, John, yes? Anyway, fine. Uh, here's one from Daniel Mandich. Uh, Daniel Mandich says, uh, I liked John ever since he arrived at, on TIFO, but after this Fredo bit, I now know he has the chaotic potential I was hoping for, and I absolutely love him. That's sucking up too much, isn't well, it? it? Come on, come on, Daniel. But I love, come off I it, love Daniel. Daniel Mandich. I love you back. Here's another one. Max... Max Wellstar, I'd like to add my voice in support of the Freddo discussion. Not only do I welcome the Freddo discussion, but I would invite the TIFO football podcast in going further in implementing a policy of only ever discussing the value of footballers in Freddo's Max Wellstar. No. Darren Malone says, uh, came to find out how Seb's gates were and left with a deeper appreciation for Zinedine Zidane's value. Yes. Who is that? Darren Malone. Oh, no. The player. Zinedine Zidane. Ah, yes. What did I say? Roughly that. Yeah. I, it's because I can hear my voice in my ear. It's so off-putting. <laughs> Especially with Zinedine Zidane. It's like a name. If you hear it while you're saying it, it is. It, it would be like... When you were saying I, 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 I before in the middle of a sentence, your I and your echo I joined up for one mega I. And it was, uh, <laughs> it was a glorious I. moment. The sort of middle I. You, you know, know the band uh, Dan and Aykroyd? Or Dan and Dan and Aykroyd? Yes. So you could have Zinedine 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 here. Read the Freddo investment. On eBay, there is a Freddo from 1998, original RRP 10p, 10 pence of course, on sale for £100. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? And uh, Jeepers says, chop that price down a bit and let's say you uh, sell 20-year Freddos for £50 and you'll make a number that I can't possibly <laughs> read aloud on the podcast. I feel like that echoing in your ear trying to say that number would probably that would be blow bad, your synapses That would be bad. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. That's the end of today's podcast. Thanks uh, to everybody for their participation. Sebastian Stafford, Blore, Alfida Sane. Well, no, because we're going to see each other again. Alfida Sane's a bit more of a long-term goodbye. So we'll just do a, a choose. Alfida Sane. <laughs> John McKenzie. Alfida Sane. Uh, goodbye. And, uh, of course, uh, JJ Bull the Bullet. Forgot your name then. Well done to you. Wacky comment. Yes. Uh, JJ. Oh, JJ, Jamie. There's too many people here. Jamie, the producer, thank you. And of course, to Hankles, dropping in here and making my days so good. And to whoever stole my laptop charger over the weekend. Yeah? I'm going to find you. <laughs> Listen, I got no respect here. I got no respect. People take my laptop charger every day. They get no respect. I'm the boss. I got no respect. People just take my stuff. What do you do? Mother, how do I have authority, <laughs> mother? <laughs> how do I have authority? For anyway, anyone my who's no Joe very well, this so. is borderline real at the moment. <laughs> Someone else has encroached on his Rubicon, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end now. Bye.
The Athletic.